dear friends, I'm uh, very happy to be here. The last time I was in this hall, we were discussing the situation in the Middle East, a situation which has gone from bad to worse, as you all know, uh, and a situation which some of us predicted even before the war uh, could never be what the United States wanted. Uh, we now have a situation in Iraq where there is complete chaos, disorder, mayhem, and the figures provided, estimated, by the medical teams from John Hopkins in Baltimore who have gone to Iraq and done their surveys is that nearly three-quarters of a million Iraqis have died since the occupation. So all the, 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 the idea that this was going to be a model democratic state which was going to help uh, reshape the Middle East, which was always a pipe dream, uh, has been completely obliterated by what has been taking place in Iraq, which is why after a long, long time you have a big division within the American political establishment and between the American military and political establishments. But I'm not going to talk about that tonight. I've written about it enough. I decided to write this book on Latin America, primarily because I'd made several trips there to observe what was going on, but also to show that an alternative social vision to the neoliberal order, which was imposed by the Washington Consensus after the fall of communism, can be challenged. <clears throat> and it can be challenged democratically and it can be challenged without waging wars if leaders arise in a continent who are prepared to do the bidding of their people. And I think this is a process which has begun in Latin America. It has not ended. Uh, it's at the beginning of the process, and we, we still don't know how it will end uh, because it arouses a great deal of hostility but after seven trips to Venezuela, I can assure you, and my book is really about what is going on in Venezuela and neighboring countries and how they're learning from each other, that the aim of the Venezuelans is essentially to provide a model for Latin America and possibly other sections of the world, which shows that it is still possible for the state to create a safety net, for the wealth of the state to be used to benefit the poor, to try and wipe out poverty. And it's because Hugo Chavez embarked on that road uh, that he has aroused a great deal of hostility from the wealthy elites, both in his own continent and certainly from the United States uh, government and its allies in the European Union. So it's just to sketch out for you briefly what happened in Venezuela. It's a country which, as many of you know, was not so well known. Uh, prior to the victory of Chavez. Now it's become probably one of the best-known countries globally. Its leader is admired in large parts of the world, if not the United States. 
he travels all over the world. His portraits are carried in mass demonstrations in different continents for the simple reason that he has shown it's possible to be a bit different from the established order. Now, how did this happen? This happened, many of you think, no doubt, that the first revolt against neoliberal globalization began in Seattle. Well, that was the first revolt in the United States, the first revolt in the world against neoliberal globalization began in Venezuela in as early as 1989, when a social democratic government attempted to impose a program that had been decided on by the IMF and the World Bank, and these measures, of course, included massive reduction in state subsidies to the poor, subsidies in uh, relation to transport in particular, which triggered off a completely unexpected and spontaneous uprising, which became known as the Caracazzo. This uprising, which took place in 1989, created uh, upheaval in that country which led to massive uh, clashes and the government called out the Venezuelan army and told them to shoot to kill. Nearly 3,000 people died. Some were buried in mass graves. Others were left on the streets. This event was barely reported in the mainstream media hardly any reporting of it. And it was this event that polarized the country, discredited the old parties, and was very receptive. The country, or the poor in the country, became very receptive to new ideas that were emerging. At the same time as this happened, inside the Venezuelan army, a group of young officers met and began to talk about how the army was being used to crush the people and said this shouldn't be tolerated and we should overthrow the government which misused the army and organize new elections. It was in that attempt, soon after 1892, that Hugo Chavez, the leader of the Bolivarian movement, became famous. He failed at that time and went to prison, but became extremely popular in the country. And that popularity was due to the fact that he spoke up against the killings, he spoke up against the social economic order that had led to the killings, and he said that the Venezuelan poor deserved something better. And, you know, the rhetoric that had been employed by the president of Venezuela prior to the offensive against the poor, you have to see what he promised people in his country. Uh, when I was researching this book, even I was a bit astonished uh, by the uh, language uh, that Carlos Andres uh, uh, Perez uh, used. Uh, he described, for instance, the World Bank, or the economists on the payroll of the World Bank as, quote, genocide workers in the pay of economic totalitarianism. He referred to the 
International Monetary Fund as, quote, a neutron bomb that killed people but left buildings standing. Uh, the rhetoric was popular, but it's the acts that followed that uh, in enhanced his popularity. This is of Chavez's predecessor. He nationalized Shell, Exxon, and U.S. Steel. Ten years later, he waged another election campaign promising even more. Uh, again, he described the IMF as la bomba solo mata gente, a bomb that only kills people. He won 53% of the votes, canvassing on that basis, and then immediately after he was elected, he capitulated. Did everything he had promised not to do, and that is what led to the Caracaso. And it's difficult for people who don't know to understand how the political, the traditional political parties in uh, Venezuela were discredited as a result. And that is what gave birth to the Bolivarian movement and to the emergence of uh, Chavez, who won the elections in the late 90s and then repeatedly has won five elections in a row in different, shape, in different times, in different forms since that period. Now, what explains the popularity of this year, which incidentally is why it's puzzling to hear the US press and media refer to him constantly as a totalitarian. I mean, this guy has been democratically elected. As anyone can find out by going to the websites and seeing the election campaigns uh, and seeing how he won. And he won and defeated the Venezuelan oligarchy by not only promising, his promises were modest, but he began to implement them, and that had not been done in Venezuela before. And he said that the money from the oil, the oil profits of Venezuela should be used to help the poor, and he began to do that. And modest increases in the living standards of the poor began to take place. Money began to be spent on health, on education. Land reforms began to be pushed through. All this began to happen slowly. And then the Western powers, it wasn't just the United States, it was the United States, Spain, and the EU, decided that they were going to try and topple him. Why? They were going to try and topple him because he was presenting a social alternative which might become popular elsewhere and which challenged the carefully constructed economic system that had been built after the fall of communism. And so they tried to topple him. The first time they tried to topple him was after a coup d'etat in 2002, a year before they went into Iraq. They tried regime change in Venezuela. That blew up in their face. It blew up in their face because the soldiers, the rank and file soldiers in the Venezuelan army rebelled, mutinied, and said we will not, or we will not accept this. And uh, the poor from the slums began to march down into the town, and soon it became obvious that the coup had failed. Within 48 hours, the corrupt second-rate businessman who had been made president after the coup was removed. He was removed. Uh, 
and Chavez came back, strengthened. Then they attempted a strike of the middle class professions, teachers and doctors, the oligarchic parties who had big links there, told them to come out on strike, hoping to destabilize the regime and create chaos and hoping that Chavez would fall. That failed too, that was more serious. And the reason that failed, because we now saw a really genuine act of solidarity in Latin America, which was that the Cuban government, an island of 12 million people, but with a great deal of human capital, decided to send 14 and a half thousand doctors into Venezuela within two weeks. They arrived with their medicines free and they set up clinics in the poorest areas of the country. The poorest areas of the country and provided free medicine. And I don't know how many of you know Venezuela, but the class divisions between rich and poor mirror racial divisions in the country. I've never seen this so clearly in, in other parts of the world. In Venezuela, it's very clear that the lighter-skinned people comprise the oligarchy and its supporters, by and large, and the overwhelming bulk of the poor are of mixed race or dark-skinned or whatever. And because Chavez came from a mixed-race family of indigenous uh, people and uh, people of slave descent in Venezuela, he was constantly denounced in the oligarchic press in totally racist language, a language which would not be acceptable in the United States in public discourse. The private television channels, literally, I am not uh, exaggerating, the private television channels denounced him as a monkey. They showed images of real monkeys together with Chavez. Uh, in the media attacked him on those lines. The, uh, <clears throat> Even people who should know better, quite sort of senior academics on the campuses who are supposed to be progressive, if you ask them, what is your real hostility to this guy? They would say, ah, we know long from our history we have learned one lesson, never trust a Zambo. A Zambo is a, a rude word for people of mixed descent, especially uh, indigenous and black descent. So there was a great deal of racist hostility uh, to Chavez as well in a country where the oligarchy had really never lost power. And that added uh, to the opposition and that made it an extremely bitter election campaign on a number of occasions. But he won, he won out, he had the support, he had popular support and that is what was decisive without any doubt. Without that popular support, he would have lost. But he had popular support, and he refused, even after the coup d'etat, when some of his own supporters said, let's have exemplary punishments for those who defied us, those who betrayed the Constitution, and those who tried to topple you by force. And he refused. He said, leave them be. Uh, we don't want to create the, a climate of... Uh, punishment and bloodbaths in Venezuela. 
one of the people centrally involved in planning the military coup d'etat in Venezuela itself was Gustavo Cisneros, the owner of the large media channels, private media channels, in whose offices discussions on the coup took place. And if you followed those 48 hours in which the coup happened and you followed Cisneros's channels, it was quite astonishing, quite astonishing, the sheer propaganda of what was coming out. Nonetheless, not a single one of these television channels was banned or taken over or punished. Didn't happen. So why this continuous charge of authoritarianism? which is made against him in the US media in particular and by some of their supporters inside uh, in, 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 in Europe. That is uh, some of the stuff which I uh, you know, discuss, discuss in the book. Now, of course, what makes him extremely unpopular with the Western elites is that he has an anti-imperialist foreign policy. He says, publicly what many people elsewhere in the world think but are too scared to say. He says the US is an imperial power. He says we are trying to revise the ideas of Bolivar. Bolivar fought against the Spanish Empire and didn't stop till that Spanish Empire had been defeated. And he said we will fight in Latin America to create a Bolivarian Federation which remained a dream when Bolivar was alive to unite our continent against the new empire that has dominated us for a long, long time, which is the American Empire, the North American Empire, the United States. Until that task is achieved, we will not give up. Now, you can disagree with that, but one has to admire the guy for coming out publicly, stating what his political aims are, and attempting to carry them out. And he does so. And this emergence of this new current in Latin America has polarized politics, certainly in that continent and elsewhere too. Because A, he's shown that it's possible if you have some vision to challenge the neoliberal order, not only is another world possible, but another world is possible now. And if you have the support of the people and you carry out what you promise them in election campaigns, this process can begin. And secondly, he showed that the more the Latin American continent is united, the easier it is to confront the United States. It becomes easier, not more difficult. Now, a big debate goes on in Latin America, and virtually every country which has had an election since, it's been polarized, are you with Chavez or against him? And in Mexico, in the recent elections in Mexico, this charge reached such a crescendo uh, that the elite in Mexico and the Mexican state, which is had you know, stolen elections before, basically stole this last election. With the support, it has to be said, of the dominant media networks, global media networks, who said that this was a fair election when all the evidence that has been now put together by, largely by independent journalists uh, indicates the exact opposite, that the Mexican election was stolen. And nobody cares in the West because their side won. And one of the big charges 
against Lopez Obrador, it was a fake charge because he's not as radical as Chavez. But the charge made against him was that if he won, Mexico would join the Bolivarians. It was becoming part of that process. What is certainly true is that if Lopez Obrador had won, uh, Mexico's foreign policy would have undergone a shift. Domestically, we don't know, some things would have been done, but certainly in foreign policy terms, Mexico would have undergone a shift. So the only way to stop these things now is to rig the elections, which means that the whole notion of democracy, as it is practiced in Latin America and not just there, <coughs> is becoming problematic. And often, I think, that what we have now in many parts of the world is not a sort of genuine democracy which offers people a real alternative, but an ideology called democratism, which pretends that it is a democracy. Because if you have no alternatives offered inside a democratic system, and the number of people voting constantly goes farther and further down, then how can this be described as a democracy? And in fact, uh, it was an American president in the uh, late 50s who Eisenhower or his speechwriter, I don't know who should take the credit, but in any case, who, who argued in his farewell speech to the American people that we are now in a very dangerous situation, a military-industrial complex is uh, taking control of the country, and the only way this can be contested is through enhanced democracy. And, he's, and he argued, and his phrase is very interesting, that a successful democracy needs an alert and vigilant citizenry. Now, how can you have an alert and vigilant citizenry in a society where the media is so completely dominated and controlled by one particular point of view that opposition views are barely reported. And the case of Iraq is very you know, clear that here was a case where lies were told to convince a skeptical public that it had to go to war. And the reporting of what has been going on in Venezuela is very similar in kind. It's completely monochrome, monotone. Uh, no one is given the benefit of the doubt. And this reporting is virtually the same in large sections of the Western press, not just, I would add, in the United States, but elsewhere as well. And this is quite frightening, because what we are actually witnessing is a decline in the culture, the political culture of democratic states, which is extremely dangerous. Because if this carries on in the way it is, within 50 years there will not be any effective democratic functioning. And this is something worth thinking about. And it's ironic from that point of view that you have a much sharper sense of what a democracy is in countries which do not lie inside the northern hemispheres of the world. Uh, sometimes very real and urgent debates in the course of a democratic election take place in Latin America or parts of Asia. 
uh, they do not take place in the West, where the choices on offer are extremely limited. So from that point of view, the example of Latin America is not simply an example for the rest of the Latin American continent. It offers possibilities for the Western world too. That it is, shows it is possible to have uh, uh, a political you know, parties, politicians, political movements which defend the interests of the people and if elected by the people, attempt to carry that out. Uh, that it is possible to have governments which are not governments of the wealthy elites, which is the case in virtually every single Western country today, which signed up to the Washington Consensus. So Latin America, from that point of view, offers some hope again in a world which was bereft of hope because the most monotonous cry since the 90s was we can't do anything, there are no alternatives. There's absolutely nothing to be done. And that is now, that is now uh, beginning to alter and change slowly and uh, uh, modestly. And that is why this particular change which has begun in Latin America and which has not been concluded is a change for the better. Uh, it's not a change which one could describe as revolutionary, but it is a important uh, shift uh, to the left in that continent as part of a desire to do something for the ordinary people. That's what I keep stressing because that's what it is. And you have now seen a similar development taking place in Bolivia, again a country not very well known, whose history is not very well known in the rest of the world. But here we have had for the first time in the history of South America, an indigenous leader who has been elected president. And an indigenous leader whose election uh, essentially is a reflection of giant social movements that erupted in uh, Bolivia. And these social movements challenged privatizations. They challenged the privatization, for instance, of water. And the water privatization in Bolivia led to an insurrection in Cochabamba, one of the largest cities in that country. Uh, it led to deaths when people tried to stop it and the police opened fire. And ultimately, they won that battle. They reversed the privatization, control the company Bechtel was asked to leave, and the water was handed back to the municipality of Cochabamba. So it was a victory, and these victories then began to transform the consciousness of the people who felt that if we have won here, we could possibly win nationally as well. And three, four years later, they won a national victory with the triumph of uh, Evo Morales. And the first thing Evo Morales did was to fly to Havana because he knew he was now the president of a country in which a Cuban leader had been killed, Che Guevara, in October 67, <clears throat> fighting in vain at that time, alas, to try and improve the conditions of the poor peasants in uh, Bolivia 
and that he had now won, so he went to pay tribute to Che in Havana, and for the first time, Che Guevara's birthday, 78th birthday, was observed officially in Bolivia, the country where he was killed, with CIA agents watching benignly as the, uh, uh, the wounded Guevara was shot dead. So this victory in Bolivia, combined to the victory in Venezuela, and added to the human capital that exists in Cuba, which has been of enormous help, uh, has begun to change perceptions. There is nothing else remotely resembling this anywhere else in the world. Because if you look at Europe, it's virtually dead politically. Uh, you have very little alternatives uh, coming up. The left in most of Europe is in a state of advanced decomposition. Uh, if you look at Asia, uh, you know, this is a continent very complacent at the moment. I mean, there are movements. You had a big, big uprising in Nepal, uh, where the monarchy came close to being overthrown and still might be overthrown. I mean, you had a virtual insurrection, you know, you had an insurrection in that country. And the king had to step backwards, and that struggle is not over. You have various social movements in India, but on the level of official politics, there is no alternative that is being offered. The Far Eastern countries are so heavily now tied in to the new neoliberal order that by and large, they don't do anything. Uh, and you know, you have peasant revolts and uprisings beginning again in China, but there is nothing on a national or global scale in that continent which is encouraging. The situation in Africa, I think you're well aware of, that the entire continent was wrecked once the new consensus was put in order, and even those African countries which had attempted to improve the lot of their people modestly were told by the IMF and the World Bank that they could no longer do it. So the safety nets that had been created in parts of the African continent virtually disappeared. And you cannot understand the tragedy of Darfur, which is taking place in the Sudan, without understanding what had happened to that part of the world economically and without understanding uh, 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 the climatic changes which had created massive problems for the two major tribes in the region who are now fighting each other for limited resources. So when people talk about intervention in Darfur, the intervention that is really needed is a massive social economic intervention to transform the region. Military intervention in that region is just foolish. You don't need it. You just kill more people. So that is uh, 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 the global situation. And it's in this situation that the Latin American continent uh, actually offers uh, some, uh, some hope. And that is why the hostility to this is very great in the European Union and in the United States. That's why they try and destabilize and topple these regimes, and they might even succeed over the next years to come. I mean, the classic case, which actually didn't lead to change, but which was very instructive, 
was Argentina, which had for 10 years accepted all the invocations of the IMF, the World Bank, the US Treasury Department, done whatever they were told to do, and the system collapsed. There was a financial crisis, the banks had to close down, the middle class layers and upper middle class layers of Argentina who had never been affected by any economic crisis ever before now found themselves scrabbling for food just like the poor. And the result was that in a city like Buenos Aires, popular assemblies sprang up in every quarter of the city, in every quarter of the city to try and discuss how to manage in this condition of crisis and over two weeks three different presidents fell. And that was the result basically of, uh, of following these policies. And the new leadership in Argentina, of course, now uses this fact to try and wring more concessions from the global networks and often succeeds in doing so. But it has not basically uh, affected uh, the functioning of Argentina in terms of an alternative, alternative uh, government uh, coming into power. There is nothing in Argentina which is reminiscent of either Hugo Chavez or Evo Morales, leave alone the Cubans. So the point is that we have in this continent now a very clear alternative, and this is impacting also on the Arab world. I give you one example. About three, four years ago, Hugo Chavez was interviewed on Al Jazeera, the big Arab television channel, the only television channel in the history of the world which the United States has bombed three times. Uh, once in Afghanistan, uh, twice in Iraq, uh, to try and destroy it, and has failed to do so. And in this, in this, television interview, Chavez explained his policies, what he was doing, how he was trying to use the oil money to improve the lot of the poor, how he was resisting the United States by coming up with social alternatives. And incidentally, the other thing about him is that, you know, while sometimes he goes a bit over the top, uh, 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 as you saw in the United, you know, elements of the UN speech and in a you know, speech he made in Harlem, but by and large he knows how to appeal to the United States population. When he refers to the radical traditions in the United States, he knows exactly what he's doing. And uh, that has some effect and impact. I mean, which other head of state who comes to the United Nations makes a sharp attack on the leadership of the United States and what it's up to in the rest of the world, and then advises the American population to read Noam Chomsky's latest book. <laughs> and suddenly, uh, Noam Chomsky's latest book jumps to the top of the Amazon bestseller list at number one, and within a week, Noam is number five on the New York Times bestseller list which indicates also a great deal of volatility and uncertainty within the American public, by the way. That is something which shouldn't be ignored, and interventions like that uh, are very rare. Uh, but the fact that it had that impact shows that Chavez's interventions were not without some effect on American 
uh, political culture, despite the massive, large-scale demonization by the United States media. Now, so when he appeared on Al Jazeera for one hour, the effect in the Middle East was electric. Electric. 36 million people watched that program. And the Al Jazeera producers told me when I was in Qatar, they said we have never had so many emails in our entire existence. And that the bulk of these emails asked one question in different ways. When will the Arab world produce a leader like Chavez again? Because the Arab world, as its people know, is rich with oil. And the, the oil wealth of the Arab world is enough to educate every single citizen in the entire Muslim world, not just the Middle East, in Indonesia, in Pakistan, everywhere. And not just educate them on the level of school education, but educate them in the level of universities, technical education, sciences, mathematics, could be done very easily if they had the will to do so. But they don't do it. And the reason they don't do it is because they are in hock to the West. They've been put into power there or into place by the West many, many years ago, and they do its bidding. That's why they can't do that. That's why Chavez's speech had this impact on the Arab world. That's why his portraits are carried on large demonstrations in Beirut and in Cairo, because he offers an alternative. And that is the importance of both the Venezuelan process, which, as I said earlier and stressed, is at the beginning. It's the beginning of this process. It's nowhere reached its end. So we can see that what it is, is a country in transition. A country whose poor have decided clearly on five separate occasions that they want social change. And a country whose poor have decided they don't want to be ruled by the Venezuelan oligarchy anymore. They've had enough of that and they've elected a leader, and they've got a leadership now which has a very tricky five, ten years ahead of it, because it's made some changes, and it has to decide which way it is going to go in the future. And on these decisions and on the changes implemented and affected depends the future of Venezuela, but not just Venezuela, also of Latin America. Because what makes Venezuela so important and why the US political elite is obsessed with it is that it's an oil-rich country, like Iraq. And they know perfectly well that this oil wealth can be used to change the face both of Venezuela and large parts of the continent. And to his enormous credit, Chavez has offered this even to Lula, the president of Brazil, said if you want to push through social changes which challenge the IMF and the world order in the interests of the poor, we will help you. We will sell you cheap oil in order to be able to achieve these changes. So it's a very interesting situation in Venezuela and it's a situation which, in which that country requires both solidarity and understanding, because they are large 
It's a very large Hispanic population in the United States, which is also something which the elite has noticed and Samuel Huntington has commented on. His war of civilizations has moved from being a war between Christianity and Islam to being a battle between the white Protestant elite in the United States and the Catholic Hispanic elite. That's what he, uh, Catholic Hispanic masses, that's what he writes. That this could be a problem because this poses a challenge to the traditional dominance of, unite, of the United States by the elite. And we have to be extremely careful here. So it's, it's from that point of view too what happens in Latin America affects now, or is noticed by, millions of people, citizens of the United States, who are interested in that part of the world because their origins lie in that part of the world. And many of them can well ask, if these changes are being made there, how come it's so impossible to have these changes made in our own country? Why can't they happen here? And it's that which they want to stop. They don't want any alternatives on offer today, however modest, however moderate. You know, sometimes when you look at the changes in Venezuela today and discuss them quite soberly and dispassionately, they are not that radical. It's a combination of the New Deal, Roosevelt's New Deal, and some of the measures put into effect by the post-war governments in Western Europe basically left social democratic reforms. And even these reforms are not acceptable to the new world order. And they try and destable countries which try to push through these reforms and push through regime change. And after the coup attempt against Chavez had failed, Condoleezza Rice said, when asked, what do you think? She said, well, I hope he's learned his lesson and now learns how to behave himself. <laughs> I mean, this is the language of, you know, of, of, of the imperialist elite. Okay, you're lucky you've survived, now you behave yourself. Well, mercifully, Chavez refuses to behave himself. He doesn't do it. Because the important thing about him, with his strengths and weaknesses, is that he knows that in this life, which you have once, that you only have one life, you have to make a choice. And you have to decide how you're going to live that life. And he's decided that he is going to live that life himself, personally. It's an individual choice as well as a political choice, fighting. And he doesn't care what they do to him. He speaks his mind. He speaks out aloud. And he challenges the imperial and social and economic interests of the uh, United States. And for that, I think we should be grateful. And that is uh, what this new book uh, of mine, Pirates of the Caribbean, Axis of Hope, is all about. Thank you. Thank you.